Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It gives me great pleasure to introduce this evening's discussion on future estates. It follows after an event we held a couple of months back called (laughs) Forgotten Estates, which if any of you are out there would realise it was a very hotly contested discussion about the changing status and perception of estates. But this evening we focus really on regeneration and the alternative, the possibilities around it, interrogate some of the issues behind it. And I'm very pleased to say we're in the very capable hands of the architect architecture critic from the, uh, from the Guardian, Oliver Wainwright. So without further ado, I will hand over to Ollie to get discussion underway. Thank you very much, Kate, and thank you all for coming to what I hope will be a heated debate and discussion on the future of uh, the nature of council estates in London and, and what kind of form they may take um, over the coming years. Um, now, if you believe everything you read in The Guardian, you'll know that estate regeneration is synonymous with social cleansing. Um, it's the phenomenon where residents are endlessly decanted, like um, bits of cereal from a cereal box dispersed for miles outside London, uh, the process by which public assets are relentlessly sold off and trampled by speculative investors uh, with no interest in the future of their communities. Um, is that true? Uh, If you look a bit closer, um, the Greater London Authority statistics show that over the last decade, 50 council estates in London have been regenerated or have planning permission for regeneration, which will see 30,000 homes double. So we're essentially doubling the density of council estates, turning 30,000 homes into 60,000 homes. Good news story. Uh, You know, growth, London's going to grow up to 10 million, I think, over the next five, ten years. Um, and, And this is extra capacity to house those people. When you look a bit closer at what the doubling of that density actually means, it represents a net loss of 8,000 council homes. So even though we're doubling, we're, we're losing the amount of social housing on those sites. Um, I mean, the, you know, we've covered it endlessly in The Guardian and, and elsewhere. The Haygate Estates, I suppose, is the most notorious, uh, where 12,000 council homes have been, are in the process of being replaced with 2,500 flats. Again, another good news story, uh, more than doubling the density until you realise that only 82 of those flats will remain as social rented accommodation. Um, Look a bit further west, the Earl's Court development in uh, West London, £12 billion regeneration by Capco. Uh, We'll see the destruction of 760 council homes, replaced with a vast development of which just 11% is going to be affordable in a borough where the statutory level is up to 50 uh, another example, the West Hendon Estate in Barnets, being developed with Barrett Homes, overall has seen a net loss of 200 social housing units on one estate alone, uh, where equivalent new homes were offered to previous leaseholders at about three to four times the price of what they were uh, offered when they left the estate. So this story is repeated across the capital. Um, Around 90 council estates are potentially facing demolition across London at the moment, which could see the disappearance of anywhere between 20,000 and 200,000 council homes in London alone. Now, this process is exacerbated by a kind of convenient politicisation of post-war housing developments. If any of you came to the last debate, that covered that in depth. Earlier this year, in January, David Cameron announced that he wanted to bulldoze 100 so-called sink estates, He said, step outside in the worst estates and you're confronted by concrete slabs dropped from on high, brutal high-rise towers and dark alleyways that are a gift to criminals and drug dealers. 
The police often talk about the importance of designing out crime, but these estates actually designed it in. <laughs> Decades of neglect have led to gangs, ghettos, and antisocial behaviour. So it's this rhetoric we keep hearing. It's the design of these estates that are to blame. Uh, something that was echoed earlier this month by John Hayes, the transport secretary who launched an attack on the cult of ugliness of brutalist estates. So not only are they kind of socially iniquitous, they're also ugly. So what can be done? Um, I mean, I think councils are in this kind of impossible position uh, where they've had their housing grants slashed by 60%. There's a cap on borrowing. The Housing and Planning Act, as we're going to discuss um, tonight, forces them to sell off their most valuable assets um, and extending the right to buy to housing associations. So they're in this kind of impossible position. Uh, And if I can now have my slide appear by magic... Uh, this has appeared around the corner from me in uh, Hackney, um, where it, it just kind of reveals, I suppose, the, the lengths that councils are having to go to, to kind of almost say, it's not our fault. Um, we've got 20 new council homes, sorry, 28 new council homes for social renting, 39 for shared ownership, and eight for private sale to help pay for them all in the absence of government funding. So, you know, this is just a, a very kind of small example, only eight private flats, but councils are being forced more and more to operate like developers, given they have no other option. They have to make a profit on their own land in order to cross-subsidise the construction of further social housing. So, what are the alternatives? That's what my panel is here to shed some light on, hopefully. We're going to begin with Sarah Wigglesworth, to my left, uh, who founded her practice, Sarah Wigglesworth Architects, in 1994. Uh, known for pioneering new approaches to building using low-energy technologies. Uh, She's worked for a range of London boroughs, from Barking and Dagenham to Redbridge and Richmond, uh, has built affordable housing for Southwark, and carried out a self-funded study on the Robin Hood Gardens estate for the 20th Century Society, which showed how the existing complex could be retained and refurbished rather than demolished, which sadly they ignored. (laughs) I wish they had listened. Uh, Then we're going to have John Lewis, who's the former director of the Letchworth Garden City Heritage Foundation and now heads up Peabody's work in Thamesmead, um, which is going to be a 1.5 billion regeneration project of the 1960s Newtown, famous for playing host to the setting of A Clockwork Orange, uh, where they're planning to build 25,000 new homes in an area the size of Winchester. Then we're going to have Adam Khan, whose practice celebrates its 10th birthday this week. So happy birthday, Adam. Uh, he's working on several major regeneration schemes in the UK and Scandinavia, including Tower Court in Hackney, which will see 130 mixed-tenure homes and a depot for the Orthodox Jewish Ambulance Service, along with a project to breathe new life into an existing 1960s estate in Denmark. And finally, we've got Geraldine Denning from Ash Architects for Social Housing, uh, which was established last March as a platform for offering support, advice, and expertise to residents who feel their interests and voices are increasingly marginalised by local councils and housing associations. And she's responsible for organising several lively protests outside MIPIM and the Sterling Prize, as I'm sure a lot of you have seen. Sarah? I just want to start off with a background uh, sort of context. We're living in a really difficult era where actually the problems of how to house our population, particularly in London, are really acute and that actually that's not being helped by legislation because the legislation that we're labouring under is actually configured as a kind of ideology of market-driven solutions and with the refusal to raise taxes and with local authority budget cuts and legal restrictions on what local authorities can do in house building, it's leading to a situation which is almost intractable as a solution. 
Actually, I personally think that the Housing and Planning Bill is really retrogressive and it's a shame that the Lords weren't able to change it more because under that there's no requirement to build any affordable rental homes through Section 106 monies. There's a duty to build state-discounted starter homes at 20% less than market price and that constitutes an affordable offer. There's an extension for right to buy to housing association tenants, um, which is funded through receipts of sale of higher value properties. So once they become vacant, they'll be forced to be sold, although that threshold hasn't been set yet, which makes it very difficult because nobody quite knows exactly what the level is. Developers can actually choose what processes they want to get their planning application through, and there's talk about the use of competent Uh, professionals to do that, which really skews the offer in favour of the developer. And there's no neighbourhood right of appeal against planning decisions, which was actually rejected in the law um, after the Lords had asked the government to include it in the bill, which actually has tipped the balance in favour of the developers massively. And of course, there's also the abolition of secure um, tenancies in favour of uh, time-restricted tenancies, so fixed terms. And then there's also the uh, automatic planning permission on brownfield sites, which essentially I read as a sort of code for we don't like council estates and want to get rid of them, and that's the easy way of doing it. So taken together, all of those things <laughs> add up to a kind of loss of all the cheaper homes um, and homes that are sold on the open market, leading to a kind of buy-to-rent situation where they can be leased back in insecure tenancies for higher values to people. And actually, the problem with all of that is is that Joseph Roundtree's research shows that the displacement of social rented housing um, by af- affordable or you know market alternatives that are available under this regime will just increase poverty and... Uh, and it will be funded through um, housing benefits. So actually the whole thing is going to cost us all much more in the long run. And that doesn't seem to be a very good solution to our current problems. Um, And actually the JRF also points to the fact that the importance of secure tenancies and low (coughs) rents in alleviating poverty and creating incentives to work are really um, essential. So it worries me because actually in the loss of these kind of mixed communities, we're... Um, getting a more and more divided culture and you know the message of the spirit level is that we actually ought to be uh, looking for a more egalitarian culture where people are happier and their um, attainment is better in school and they're healthier and so on and so forth and actually that's something that we will reap the rewards for if we don't address very very shortly. So that's sort of one aspect. And then there's a further aspect which kind of relates to that, that idea about the resilient and sustainable community, which is, of course, about climate change. And actually by ripping the heart out of communities that have become stabilised, albeit in possibly quite difficult circumstances, I mean in new models of housing which people have come to learn to live with and uh, build their communities in, by ripping those apart we're not making a sustainable future for our communities. And that really, really worries me because uh, the results of that will be civic strife and um, so on and so forth and all the other things which should ensue for that. Now, I'm also, as an architect interested in sustainability, really interested in 
um, what we can do to save all the embodied carbon and that's locked up in all of these structures. And actually, I think we don't try nearly hard enough um, to make uh, arguments about why we should keep them. And I think there should be a restriction on what you can do based on a really clear research and analysis of what embodied carbon is there, which we shouldn't be losing. So those are some really initial thoughts around what's happening to us at the moment. That's great. John? Okay, thank you very much. Well, I've gone a bit more pictorial, actually. Um, so uh, I thought you might want to see some pictures of Thamesmead. I should also say, looking at the audience here, I'm, I'm not an architect. Um, so uh, probably the only one in the room, possibly. But anyway, I, I just thought I'd give you a bit of a, a run through Thamesmead. Can I just ask, has anyone been to Thamesmead? Do people know where it is? Okay, not loads, but it's in, it's in south-east London. It straddles uh, Greenwich and Bexley, so it hits two London boroughs. Um, it's large, 750 hectares. Just to give you a bit of a, a sense of what that scale means, uh, if you can picture central London, if you walk from uh, Bond Street to Liverpool Street, then King's Cross down to Charing Cross, you've just covered Thamesmead. So it's a very, very large part of south London. As you can see from that picture, quite a lot of it is still undeveloped. It's home to about 48,000 people of which 41% of those live in socially rented homes. Uh, It was first conceived in the mid-60s. It's a GLC. Uh, Looking at the audience, some people probably never heard of the GLC. Um, The Greater London Council designed Thamesmead, or certainly the first phases, and a lot of it was made of precast concrete slabs, which were actually constructed on site and then brought in by cranes to physically build slab by slab. So incredibly innovative. Um, So when you hear about off-site manufacture, this was on-site manufacture on a big scale. Um, Now, that's what it looks like currently, and part of our role as a housing association where we have uh, over 15,000 tenants' responsibility for them uh, in terms of making sure they've got good homes. We're about improving the lived experience of what is quite a challenging area in London. I've just got a few images here, uh, which gives you a bit of an idea of of what it looks like. Um, There's a lot of, because of the original flooding of the area, which has actually been sorted now because of the Thames Barrier, but when it was first designed, you couldn't have any residential space on ground floor level. So consequently, you've got a lot of raised walkways, uh, which have now become quite difficult things to manage and actually quite difficult to navigate. So you have areas like this, which are quite tight walkways, as you can imagine, in areas where there is uh, some antisocial behaviour, a bit of crime, there are a lot of areas you can hide, which does cause a lot of difficulty uh, uh, or a perceived difficulty for a lot of residents in the area. Um, areas such as this, where you've got some uh, dark walkways as well, are all because of the elevated status of the construction. So there's a lot of steps, a lot of ramps, uh, a lot of overhead balconies. And then what was dealt with at ground floor level was, well, the cars can deal with that. So a lot of uh, uh, on-block garaging that sat underneath the buildings. So I've got to say, purely from just a walkability point of view, a lot of the early phases uh, were not particularly uh, warm or encouraging as areas for, for people to navigate and has caused quite a, li- a lot of issues in terms of the sort of permeability of the area. Now, four decades of development have dealt, uh, have delivered this. Uh, so there's been a range of development following on through the 60s and 70s into 80s, 90s, and there were some in the 2000s. Uh, A lot of it is developed and looks like a lot of parts of suburban London, Uh, nothing dramatic, equally nothing uh, too horrendous. Uh, But what has been amazing uh, is the maturing landscape. Um, So there was a lot of thought given to green spaces and blue spaces, so we currently manage a lot of parks uh, and lakes, which form both the function of making sure the place doesn't flood, but also create some fantastic amenity. So what we're all about, uh, which is probably linking a little bit to the discussions today, uh, is our mission is just to improve, grow, and look after uh, Thamesmead for the long term. 
Uh, we're a housing association 154 years old. We, are not, uh, we don't ever take a short-term view. Uh, it's all about the long term, and that's something we're applying to Thamesmead. Uh, and that means that we are taking a, a total view of the place, which means things like not just physical development or the physical infrastructure challenges and changes, but also the social and economic uh, infrastructure is equally important in terms of as we regenerate the area. Now, I know later people want to talk about protecting existing spaces and also the challenges of new development. We are doing some new development. Some of it is on brownfield, previously developed land, such as this, which is the first phase of 1,500 home development, which is going to deliver brand new uh, housing uh, around Southmere Lake. Uh, we will also be demolishing some of the existing estate, uh, and in total it will probably mean about 20% of the total housing stock we have. Um, we're about to go on site to develop some new uh, affordable housing in West Thamesmead and we'll be putting in a planning application for this scheme uh, that is on the stocks at the moment, which again is a former industrial site which will be redeveloped for residential and commercial. This is probably the most iconic image of Thamesmead. This is on Southmere Lake, the famous four towers. Uh, we're currently going through an exercise at the moment to see whether we can do some internal refurbishment to improve the lived experience here. Unfortunately, because of the concrete slabs and the change to the heating system, these now suffer from quite a lot of damp and mould uh, because they've all got individual boilers and radiators which don't really work very well with slab concrete because of cold bridging. So we're looking if we can do something uh, to improve the living conditions internally whilst respecting the external environment, which I think is quite uh, uh, an important uh, part of the history of Thamesmead. Uh, we're also looking at reusing buildings. This is, was originally a discotheque, and I use that advisedly uh, <laughs> when it was last used, um, and it's boarded up currently, but will become a creative hub to really bring a sense of uh, creative activity and bring an interesting new audience to the areas as well. Um, just very quickly, we're also looking forward to really uh, taking on board the new accessibility to Thamesmead. We have a crossrail station opening in 2018, uh, and then the mayor very kindly announced a new DLR station coming across to Thamesmead from the north to the south, which basically means, as you can just see from the DLR logo there, um, that that green space has got the opportunity to bring a whole new town centre on the waterfront, which also means something to the tune of about 11,500 new homes without having to interrupt any existing housing uh, within the existing area of Thamesmead. It's an ambition for a thriving town centre. We're also building a town identity because we feel very, very much as a housing association we must respect uh, what people have enjoyed for the last 40 to 50 years and we need to make sure that we're bringing communities with us. So creating a town identity that people, existing people that live there and people that will be living there can connect to. Uh, we're calling it London's new town. It was originally invented as 21st century new town and lost its way. Uh, we feel we should respect that history and then bring it forward as quite an exciting new concept. Uh, to deliver those sort of numbers, which basically means doubling in size, more homes, more jobs, and hopefully uh, respecting what's been there, but also building some new uh, for the future too. Great. Thank you, John. Wow. Over to Adam. Great. Thank you. Well, it's quite hard to follow that scale, that huge <laughs> scale. Give it a go. I kind of uh, agree with Sorry, that you know, the macro position is pretty gloomy in terms of finding housing, uh, state of housing, and also the housing bill just is kind of makes things incredibly worse and difficult. It's kind of unfathomable why that um, would, would have really uh, been pursued. Um, but I guess in the five minutes I've got, I'd like to just show some uh, kind of glimmers of, uh, you know, potential and possibility. I think we're working with um, a series of kind of local authorities and housing associations such as Peabody who are, I think, a kind of dynamic, entrepreneurial, with a very clear social agenda. 
And actually, they um, do now have the finance, the capacity, and the will to actually to work on a big scale and be really ambitious. So in one sense, the future of council estates could be to become great estates. So if you know the kind of history of the great estates, like the Duke of Westminster owning vast tracts of London... But in this case, you know, someone, for example, like Harrow, aiming to be a very big landowner and therefore, with their own social agenda, you know, drive up quality and keep control of rents. It's actually a really interesting kind of potential. Um, I think elsewhere, uh, you know, the work, the architectural work, we'd look, be looking at, actually, you know, do you want to continue with estates? Maybe estates can be transformed by being more knitted into the city. Um, and so I'm just going to show a couple of... Um, options where of the types of kind of um, uh, you know opportunity you can find to um, alternatives to uh, replacing estates because the the benefits of keeping estates in place and working around them working with them are really numerous I mean Sarah's mentioned embodied carbon I'm sure you're all familiar with that but there's also a kind of cultural capital of a community that's been established and you know, even if you decant people and bring them back, it's very, very hard to kind of knit back together that, that uh, cohesive social community, quite apart from the fact that there won't be the offer of social housing when they return. Uh, so, you know, retention gives you uh, uh, an incredible amount of kind of potential benefits. So this is actually nicely segueing on from John's. This is in uh, Thamesmead, and this is uh, some blocks. The towers, I think, are mostly to be replaced, but you can see them fronting this large, uh, oversized kind of road, and there's a barrier of what once was a raised walkway and garages and parking. There's a nice little big fat barrier. So it's all pretty unfriendly, all pretty kind of hostile. Massive great road. You can see there. Is that the point? Anyway, you can see the massive great road there. And actually, um, I guess so this is an example of focusing on the worst bits. Because in many estates, from the, say from the 60s, for example, the worst bits are the kind of public realm, the walkability at ground level. Same with Robin Hood Gardens. You know, the, the buildings, I think, are amazing, but clearly there are problems at the ground level. And, and actually, you know, the road that we're looking at is, is one in the middle of the site. It, it doesn't need to be this huge, great four-lane carriageway. It's, it kind of almost doesn't go anywhere. And, and actually, if one could take down those, I mean, the idea is anyway, to take down that barrier at the edge, the raised walkways and the garages, um, narrow the road, uh, actually you can fit lots of housing in there. So this is a kind of new boundary to that estate <laughs> formed of a terrace housing issues, making a good street. You know, even create streets would like that, wouldn't they? Um, so that's, you know, one opportunism, if you like, one area of kind of straightforward opportunism. Another one is just a little demonstration that actually infill which can often be a bit of a, uh, you know, um, not necessarily a great thing for the people who it arrives on their doorstep. Um, actually, it can benefit the, um, the, the place it arrives in. So this is the Pembury estate, and you can just make out... Can I do this? Oh, does that, no, that doesn't work. No, Pembury, old Pembury estate there, 1930s, 70s Pembury estate there. And I'm not going to show this very... I'm going to show you really quickly. But at the moment, there's a real feeling of separation between the two. It doesn't look so bad. When you get in there, there's kind of severances, landscape level differences and everything like that. And actually, potentially, you know, between the 30s estate and the 70s estate, where there is a nice little kind of courtyard garden there, but a building here, and more to the point, a kind of public realm works here that the building can unlock. 
can knit together these two estates and create a lovely big garden square. And, you know, by deft placement of that block, you know, instead of reinforcing the difference, actually you can kind of knit them together and uh, do various positive things for the public realm and the kind of sense of surveillance through it and create this kind of bright lantern at the middle of the estate and, and deal with the public deal with the kind of level changes and level access in a, in a really good way. Um, and critically also, the, the factor that's uh, not often mentioned is working with the local uh, people of all ages because actually one of the big barriers to retention of housing states is often um, the kind of, that it's not sexy enough for politicians or sometimes clients. They can't see through the grimy bits and a, and a rendering of a new kind of thousand, you know, how many thousands of development looks, looks sexier. Uh, but it's not the case when you ask people who live in the estate. Typically, they're very full of knowledge about what's good and bad about an estate. And so in this case, that project is going to end up with a, you know, a public realm kind of master plan informed by the uh, young people we just saw in the slide and so that a new building sitting at the centre of that. I'm just going to go in one minute through um, this project in Denmark uh, because I think it shows the potential to um, transform what is a very typical 60s block, which isn't that bad, but it's a bit more grim when you're on the ground. But it's just very neutral. It's all just kind of... Uh, it's all facing, you know, the, it's oriented, oriented to the sun rather than to a sense of place. I'm going to whiz through it really quickly. So this is taking the existing in adding new on to increase the sense of spatial definition of that central square, adding new to the rooftops, again, better sense of proportion, um, and then having a really clear hierarchy about where you spend money. So in this case, it's spending money on the inner lining with a whole series of winter gardens and balconies, and actually spending not very much on the outer. So we're kind of introducing a new hierarchy, and very often that 60s buildings don't have that sense of kind of clear hierarchy. Um, get through this quickly, introducing new access into the central garden and then making this central garden. So, and uh, this is just in the same section. So, as John was saying, a prefabricated building from the 1960s. The, the, uh, the uh, walls come off quite easily and, and nowadays go on quite quickly as well. So a kind of new warm jacket, a new rooftop, winter gardens on balconies on just one side, so that's the, the, uh, the privileged side, if you like, and the access is into the shared garden. All seems really straightforward and obvious. Um, but that's, you know, part of this is why these estates often feel so miserable. I mean, you can't get from those estates to this central garden, so of course it feels unused and municipal and, uh, you know, dead. And that's uh, what it's going to look like with lots of, lots of concrete. I'm not scared of concrete in Denmark. Uh, and with these winter gardens offering these kind of new, you know, these new uh, kind of bonus spaces and the, the, the rooftops. And crucially, kind of the concrete layer knitting it all together. So there's no sense of the kind of new and the old. And, the, and again, the, the kind of good people of Elbow all, all voted for it. Uh, and that's the old and, and that's the new. With the same picture on the wall, you see, the picture hasn't even been taken off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Over to you, Geraldine. Thanks, yeah. So, um, yeah, we're repeatedly told, and Ollie's mentioned today, and I think a lot of you are aware, that uh, London is facing an unprecedented housing crisis, uh, and that we must build 50,000 new homes a year to address this. Uh, we're told that the newly categorised brownfield land available to local authorities is mainly on council estates which is a direct result of their architecture, our havens for crime and antisocial behaviour, and in states of decay beyond repair. 
In addition, due to central government cuts, we're told that local authorities can no longer afford to subsidise council housing. So the only option is to demolish existing states and rebuild at higher densities, providing the additional market or affordable housing needed to fill the gap. At the same time, we're told that regeneration improves the economic and social well-being of the existing residents, housing them in homes which will be built to much higher environmental and other standards. As anyone who's involved with the reality of estate regeneration, I think that probably involves a fair number of you in this room, possibly not, most of this is a load of Orwellian newspeak, designed and propagated by those who stand to benefit from this so-called crisis, and that includes property developers, housing associations, politicians, and, in some cases, architects. At Ash, we believe that in order to begin to address this so-called crisis, we must challenge the propaganda uh, we're being fed to question its role and who stands to benefit from what's being proposed. Architects are very good at solving problems, but first we do need to identify the right problems by asking the right questions. Myth number one, the housing crisis. This is not a housing crisis. This is a housing boom. Current local and central government policies, both Tory and Labour alike, are exacerbating, not addressing, what is a crisis of affordability, not a crisis of supply. The demolition of our council estates, which are home to pretty much the only low-cost housing left in London, is causing more problems than it is solving. Myth number two, building more is the solution. Simply building more unaffordable housing will not solve the problem of affordability. As Danny Dawling pointed out, according to the 2011 census, we are living in a time where there are more rooms per person than ever before. Architects should be focusing their efforts on the affordability aspect and environmental aspect, I'd say, and other aspects of this crisis, and exploring ways to build more cheaply and not contribute to the glut of luxury housing, which is only making things worse. Myth number three, there's no space left. Again, this is simply not true. The top nine building companies are currently sitting on land on which you could build 600,000 homes in England alone. This is a deliberate attempt to drive up the price of land. Colin Wiles in Inside Housing magazine in 2013 showed there is twice as much land in the UK given over to golf courses than there is to housing. It's about priorities. Mm-hmm. Myth number four, architecture breeds crime and antisocial behaviour. Estates like the Barbican and Central Hill depicted here clearly demonstrate there is no relationship between architecture and crime and antisocial behaviour. On the contrary, on all the estates we have worked with, which includes notorious estates like the Aylesbury and the Haygate, crime is actually lower on the estates than the surrounding areas. It's in fact the managed decline of these estates by the local authorities or housing associations and the subsequent demonisation of estates by the media which facilitates their demolition. (coughs) These images show the residents of Central Hill Estates and include images from an event which we organised last year and the year before which (coughs) took place in estates across London uh, called Open Garden Estates, which is designed to challenge the inaccurate perceptions about council estates, inviting uh, people who don't know the estates onto the estates from the surrounding area and also about the residents on the estates being able to celebrate their homes. <coughs> Myth number, t- number five, sorry, demolition is good for you. In terms of improving the lives, in fact, I think Sarah mentioned the, um, the Roundtree report, in terms of improving the lives of residents on council estates, Joseph Roundtree's report in May this year showed that regeneration projects have a negative effect on existing residents. Increased rents actually make their economic position worse, pushing people ultimately into private rental accommodation and homelessness, and the uprooting of the community removes the close links which are the bedrock of our social infrastructures. Myth number six, refurbishment is not viable, and I think think that that is a really clear point. I think we need to be pushing this. In terms of financial viability, rather than being the more expensive option, refurbishment is consistently shown to be significantly more cost-effective than full demolition. 
The environmental benefits of demolition of estates and their replacement with energy-efficient new homes versus their refurbishment will only be reaped in around 60 years. And I doubt very much that much of what is being built now will even last half of that. One Wandle Housing Association estate in Peckham has been condemned after only six years, also challenging the notion that what we're building now is of a higher quality than what is actually being torn down. Myth number seven, affordable housing. Uh, now, this insidious term, affordable, has been accepted in the policy lexicon. There is no longer any requirement to provide any homes for social rent. And in planning documents, local authorities and housing associations, including Notting Hill, the Aylesbury, and, I'm sorry to say, Tem- uh, Peabody at Thamesmead, consistently replace social rent with affordable. If you look here, a four-bed affordable home, on, this is on Central Hill Estate, would be nearly four times the amount that they're paying for a four-bed social home. This is a huge... They, they, they should not ever, ever be, be confused. Council housing is subsidised. Um, it's not subsidised. <laughs> uh, in fact, through their rent, tenants on council estates pay off the full cost of the housing they use, plus their share of the construction debt. Uh, and in most post-war estates which have paid off their construction years ago, rather than being subsidised, they're actually now making money for the local authorities. It's things like right to buy, help to buy, the sale of affordable starter homes, uh, which constitute public subsidies going directly into private hands. This is an example where the, the Southwark sold the Haygate uh, to Lendlease for £50 million, which is around a tenth uh, of its land value, according to other uh, land in the area sold there, which then cost Southwark £80.5 million in evictions, demolitions and redevelopment. So that was a £30 million loss to the local authority. Uh, and as Ollie mentioned, only 82 of the 2,535 homes will be for social rent. So, as architects, we have a duty as architects to the wider environment, and that doesn't just mean some abstract notion of environmental sustainability, but refers to all communities affected by our work. We have a professional responsibility to question the brief and an obligation to demand the client properly explore alternative to demolition when we know that almost every state regeneration scheme to date, as you mentioned, has resulted in a loss of social and council housing, not the other way around. So this is a residence on West Kennedy Gibbs Green Estates. They've been fighting for their homes for the last seven years against the developer Capco, which intends to demolish their estates as part of their £2 billion Earls Court redevelopment scheme. Uh, which, again, they're proposing yeah, 11, 11% affordable housing. So we worked, Ash worked closely with the residents. Around 200 residents were involved uh, in a consultation over about six months of about 750 homes on the estate to come up with an alternative to demolition, which is a part of their business plan uh, for their application for a right to transfer the estate into their own ownership. As a result, through a combination of infill, funnily enough, we chose the same colours, I don't know where that came from, uh, infill, which is the yellow, pink uh, being roof extensions, um, we identified the opportunity for between 250 to 350 new homes on the estate, that's more than 50% potentially uh, new homes, which would easily pay for uh, any refurbishment, again, winter gardens on the, on the, uh, the tower blocks. Um, and roof extensions to provide for any new refurbishment and uh, community facilities. So by renting or selling a proportion of the new homes, this would generate the funds. So there you've got the winter gardens on top of the tower blocks and, and, uh, and roof extensions there. So similarly on Central Hill Estate in Crystal Palace, an estate which is currently threatened with demolition by Lambeth Labour Council, over the past 18 months we've worked with residents here to come up with an alternative to demolition, which again involves infill, roof extensions and new communal facilities. 
uh, which incidentally residents are currently prohibited from using as part of the Labour Council's efforts to extinguish their resistance. They're no longer able to use any of the community facilities on the, on the estate. Um, we've identified the opportunity here for, uh, some, for new community facilities and again over 200 new homes uh, on the estate. So that's again an extra, about an extra 50% new homes which we could add onto the estate. Again a sale uh, or rent of a portion of which could easily pay for the refurbishment. Uh, sorry, just quickly, Lambeth Council is about to formally announce its plans to demolish the estate on the 12th of December. That's in two weeks' time, and the residents of that would, really, would, would relish your support. Um, so quickly, just to end up, far from solving the housing crisis, the current programme of estate regeneration is actually driving it. Both Tory government and Labour councils are united in pursuing this policy of social cleansing. And it's time architects decided whose side they're on. The estate communities fighting for their homes and lives, or the property developers, housing associations, and councils getting rich on their demolition. Thank you very much. Well, fantastic amount of food for thought there. Lots of things to chew on from all of you. Um, I'd like to start, I think, by picking up on your, your last comment about which yep. side architects are on. I think this is a great slide. Oh, to leave on in the background, it's gone. <laughs> um, in, in, in terms of consultation and engagement, these kind of overused words, um, you know, in the kind of regeneration world, we talk a lot about units and, and communities, but really about people. You know, these are actual real people living in homes, not units to be kind of stacked and decanted. How do you go about engaging meaningfully, all of you, with, with an existing community and actually getting residents' involvement in shaping a plan? Because um, there are so many kind of consultation events with post-it notes and board games and, you know, what colour do you want your front door to be? How do you build a consensus of, you know, several hundred residents on an estate to, to guide um, the shape that it's going to take in, in a regeneration project? I don't know who would like to go first on that. <laughs> Maybe John, given you're, yeah, I, I, you're working well, on the, a project um, like this. The way we've done sort of one of the first phases has been about uh, door knocking, actually, because I think one of the issues is people won't uh, naturally want to go to community centres. Like you say, there are certain people who love consultations and certain people who don't interestingly think it's for them they think it's for other people to take part and and so uh, a lot of our housing officers went out and actually just knocked on doors to have conversations on the doorstep because you can do so much you know social media leaflets through doors you can advertise events all those sort of things and we have done all probably even some of the stuff you said about games and door colors but actually <laughs> we have done as, mu as much as we can but some of the most effective ways was was as i say just straightforward door knocking to say are you aware there are plans for change here and what do you think so there's been traditional surveys online stuff uh, one of the hardest uh, group to engage with funnily enough which is a real issue for us in Thamesmead is, um, is uh, absent landlords mm. uh, so you've knocking on a door and people say well I don't own this property someone else does um, and in a way they're quite disconnected from that process because they have no sort of real sort of connection our, our People we, we rent to, or, or, or shared ownership properties, or whatever, we're um, we're able to connect very directly. But that that is one of the difficult things. But we um, were able to share that information. Would you always begin before a plan is even drawn up, or would you start with options? What what stage should you actually bring? Yeah. Well, the, funnily the enough, the, in? the door knocking process was was to talk about how people people felt about living in the area currently, um, because I think it's 
to me, it's quite a day, and maybe this is the non-architect to me, it's quite dangerous to start with building plans because they're often quite exciting for people into design. I think place change can be very exciting and motivating from a sort of theoretical point of view, but when it's your own home that's going to be affected, I think what you need to understand is do actually people even like where they live? And, and I was interested, I was talking to someone, nothing to do with Tensewood at all, and because we own a lot of properties in London, we offered people where we were looking uh, as a relocation option. Um, and uh, we only had two people say they might like to consider leaving Thamesmead in this mm. process. And that really gives you a sense of how connected people are, because mm. I think it's a very easy assumption to just assume, you know, if you're not used to an area, or some areas do feel sort of not as comfortable as maybe some people are used to, and you think, oh, well, surely you'd like to move on, and, and absolutely not. And that really came across very seriously from a, a doorstep-type mm. conversation. Mm. Geraldine, how, how does Ash manage to kind of embed itself, I suppose, gain the trust of, of residents in a way that councils often fail to do? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I go back to the question to the centre, like, what are we consulting on? What is actually, what are people, have, what is the opportunity they have? I mean, you can have a, the, the consultation going on uh, on Central Hill Estate at the moment, for example, is an official consultation, but uh, they, haven't, they haven't been able to actually engage them in a consultation with our refurbishment option. They haven't even put that on the table. So the residents are not given the choice as to whether or not they want to even have their opinions inputted. So, I mean, a consultation, you know, again, in inverted commas, because quite often the residents aren't even able to engage on a... Because the decision should be made long ago. And actually a decision has been made which you come in and you look at the area and you think, oh, it's not very nice, people must want to move out, as you just said. And, and in fact, the opposite is, is, is almost entirely true. The opposite, you know, I mean, I, I don't know anybody that wants to move from Central Hill. Uh, well... People, it's about community, and I think when you're not involved with that community, uh, there's a lot. It's very easy to make kind of, um, you know, sort of stereotypes or prejudices uh, when you arrive somewhere. And I think that's the danger in that it is people coming in from the outside rather than it coming out from from from, from people who already live there. I mean, we're approached on the whole by residents who are already fighting. Very proactive already. So there yeah. is already a consensus with the ones at least that we're engaged with in that they have an idea about what they want to some extent, to achieve. Um, so we're not necessarily trying to convince anybody of anything. We're trying to take... Trying to articulate that. Right? Hopefully trying to articulate. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the consensus is also... I mean, you know, with, with what, 1,500 people, is a very, very difficult thing to reach. And people who are disabled, for example, getting out to meetings. The one thing I would put you up on the door stopping is a lot of people don't like that because they think that people are having individual conversations with individual people and actually... Residents would far prefer a larger situation because they feel that people are sort of deals being done behind closed doors. So, uh, again, that's coming mm, from the residents. Divide and conquer. Yeah. Adam, are there any lessons from Denmark that we could um, usefully introduce to London in terms of democratic process? Well, they have a very strong democratic process in that, they, I mean, you saw an image up on the slide of people taking a vote on, uh, on the whole scheme. And there were, there were numerous kind of gateways through the uh, process where, where the tenants had a vote. And, you know, the, the, it's more like a very, very big housing co-op, actually. It's a housing association, and uh, even the actual housing association is just doing the work, is, is working, is employed by that, by that group of people. So mm. they have a very strongly embedded democratic process and a kind of sinking fund to pay for it all. It's all, it's all very good. Um, <laughs> I, 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 but I would echo the kind of, uh, um, you know, having, uh, you know... Uh, faith in um, actual consultation engagement I think it's in a way it's a shame that it's uh, somehow mm. often put out to kind of slick organizations to just go do it for mm. us and I'm a big fan of architects actually mm. doing it doing it themselves DIY and doing it very specifically to each project um, because the intelligence you want to get from each project and the way you're going to get it is going to be completely different 
on each uh, project. I mean, uh, just for a couple of really quick examples on the Pembury I just showed you, by working with young people on the estate, actually it really unlocked the issue of play and where to play. Mm. And that didn't just affect them. Actually, it was the biggest issue on the, on the estate of noise, of balls hitting nets and stuff like that. So, yeah, we didn't talk to every single person on the estate, but by talking to a very significant group and getting their input, you actually get a very good representative slice of the issues. And so that, that really helped unlock an urban realm uh, master plan. And um, in Tower Court, where we've just been working, you know, we were told it would be very difficult to work with this sort of, uh, you know, very closed community of the Haredi Orthodox Jewish community because they, they didn't, you know, do letters and they didn't look at plans and all that. We heard all this stuff and it was all going to be difficult. And actually... Um, you tailor it, you tailor uh, your consultation quite precisely, you turn up on the right day, we actually just pitched up on the common, and we found that people were incredibly generous with their time, incredibly generous to talk. So in that, in that particular project, the right thing to do was just be there and talk to anyone that came around, and actually we gathered so much intelligence. That wouldn't work on another project, you'd have to choose a different method, so it's really, I think it just has to be bespoke. I think it's really important to approach it with the knowledge that there is no uh, neutrality in it, actually, mm-hmm. and that, um, you know, you, like it or not, you're kind of entering a situation <coughs> which is, is highly politicised and you have your own agenda e- as an architect, even if you don't recognise it. And, you know, typically when you get into a process which is already called consultation, um, there's a kind of steamroller thing going on in which you're sort of jumping on a bandwagon and, of course, you're allied to various forces and interests within um, the kind of mechanism that is underway. And it's very, very difficult to stay, to try and um, obtain, you know, any anywhere close to some kind of neutrality. And I'm, I'm thinking about... I mean, I've just finished a research project in Sheffield which was um, working with communities within the city and one of the, I mean there were, there were contrasting neighbourhoods that we were working in and one of them was in the south of the city in quite an affluent area which had been a, um, a Derbyshire village and had been incorporated within Grace Sheffield and there there was a very vocal community already in existence, in fact there were two communities, one was in trying to draw up a neighbourhood plan and the other one was trying to make um, this little village more sort of age-friendly as a, as a neighbourhood, as an urban realm. And we kind of entered into this and had, you know, conversations with them. And, and there we were playing, you know, they saw us as an agency with power because we were part of the university where they, who had been knocking on Sheffield City Council's door for 20 years trying to get funding for this project but kept getting rejected, um, saw their way to get something that they weren't getting and I thought that was really interesting because we, we were kind of a pawn in their game and yet actually they were getting nowhere because they were seen as an affluent bunch of people who didn't really deserve any money. Whereas in another area in the city where housing was uh, very scarce, you know, we were then seen by the, uh, by the city council as a kind of agent to try and engage a totally fed up and over-consulted group of people who were utterly cynical about the whole process because they'd been consulted to death, um, lots and lots of um, expectations raised, all of them dashed, and they just told the council to go to hell. So, you know, it's a very, very subtle and complex uh, thing that you're entering into, but I think the, the key is there is a lot of knowledge out there that you have to approach with great humility and try and tap into while you recognise 
that you're just part of a much larger dynamic mm. and mm. work out what side you're on. As well. yeah. <laughs> I'm conscious there's quite a lot of architects, I'd imagine, in the audience. So could we talk a bit more specifically about kind of typologies of, of council estates and particular types of housing, given that I think we're at a particularly interesting point where there are these new kind of hybrid forms of, of housing emerging from pocket living, which is the fastest growing housing developer in London, which offers kind of minute, uh, you know, I think they're just um, mayor's housing design guide, uh, you know, allowable, but only just tiny affordable houses, to the collective, which offers 10 square metre bedrooms um, in a much bigger block where you have a kind of huge communal living area. Um, you know, are, are existing council estates kind of fit for purpose for, for the way we live now, or do we need to be actually thinking about completely different typologies and, and different ways of... Of providing housing. I mean, is, is Peabody looking at anything different from the usual tenure mix that you would have in an estate from the 1950s? Uh, it, pro- it probably is a bit different because the 1950s council estate would have been all council rental housing, and, and I think that mixed tenure concept is much more something that is built today, uh, whether it's addressing just housing need or whether there's a, a cross subsidy needed to finance some of the housing, which I think you touched on very clearly in terms of the models that are available now in terms of the changing grant regime. Um, but I think in terms of space planning, it, it is quite interesting. I was with someone today who, who was sort of asking the question of do we need as much storage space as we used to have in terms of as we move towards a digital age, which is quite interesting. You know, do we have as many bookshelves? Do we need as many covers? And I thought, well, that's quite interesting. I've never thought of that before. But I think this issue about space um, is also a, a question of how, how we live. And I'm, I'm interested in whether a younger audience is, is so bothered about having so much personal space or whether communal space is something that's becoming... Uh, an area which isn't addressed in a lot of housing design. I think we still build things with front doors, individual apartments, and and that's where it goes. Um, I was in Hong Kong recently um, and saw some very interesting housing. I don't know if it translates completely to the way we live, but it's a very interesting issue where you've got something like three floors of communal space before you get to any apartments. Um, And the thing that really surprised me actually but seems to be very acceptable to their way of life in an area where where land is short was um in short supply sorry um is you have these tower blocks which families live in and then on the ground floor i looked into one room and there was a child having a piano lesson and actually all the things that you might see in a in a home was all happening in communal spaces um in these apartment blocks Mm, uh so there was a there was a rehearsal room there was a study room all these things that i would never have assumed you'd have in apartment blocks and they're all happening there and um, some research I was reading about millennials and that idea of communal space and shared dining spaces and all these sort of things start to question whether do we divide everything into individual living spaces or is there some room for commerciality? Uh, sorry, for communal uh, delivery. Um, and I think that's something we need to look into because we haven't done enough work on it. Might you be testing some of those ideas in, in we could, we terms of We could do if that's something that's right. I, mm. I don't know if it is right, but I do think it's something that needs to be questioned. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was just, just, just made me think of a project which we saw recently, which was in Hackney. They had identified a block which they said because the, the, the room sizes were now too small and didn't now conform to current local authority regulations, they were therefore going to be refurbished and it sounded like sold. So this seemed to me like, because, because the standards have changed, this is a kind of a slippery way of housing associates or local authorities saying this no longer conforms to our minimum regulations, so therefore it's not of no use to us, and so therefore the only option for us is either to demolish it or to sell it. And so I think, you know, I think, yeah, we definitely need to be much more clever about, I mean, our primary, you know, kind of agenda is not to lose our social council housing, which is what's happening. And if if demolition is the reason for that, then I don't see any reason why most of these 
most of these estates are actually very resilient in terms of architecturally and, you know, huge kind of embodied carbon and so on. I don't see there's any reason why they couldn't be reconfigured to accommodate newer and different kind of ways of living, mm-hmm. most of them, you know. Yeah. Well, actually, that does bring me to uh, Robin Hood Gardens because, I mean, in the study that we did, um, we looked at how we could make the flats bigger in mm. order to accommodate the Bangladeshi family mm. unit there, which is quite often multi-generational, but also much more, many more children, <laughs> even within a kind of traditional sort of uh, 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 prefabricated concrete frame structure. And actually, it proved to be not that difficult to do, which I was really surprised by. And we found flats that could be four, five, six, seven bedrooms, actually, over a number of floors, also with smaller units, which were the compensation, I guess, for making a lot of them larger. And I think um, we often think about the kind of race to the bottom as small, small apartments. And, of course, there, I think, actually, there is quite a lot of invention going on at the moment, um, perhaps in the rental sector. You've mentioned some of the uh, providers at the moment. Um, but also reinventing things like mansion flats and so forth. And I actually do think that the, the solution is is probably a lot of different variety of quite dense accommodation, not necessarily that high, but, um, I mean, maybe up to eight storeys rather than the sort of 12, which is what we're, we're kind of reaching at the moment mm. as a sort of standard, really, around London. Um, and I'm also really interested in the kind of way in which buildings can be more flexible and adaptable for the future. So the research that we were doing in Sheffield was looking at older people's housing, and there we were... I mean, all the kind of evidence was beginning to show that actually we ought to be building larger rather than smaller, but larger for the longer term and allowing people more flexible accommodation that they could configure in different ways at different stages in their life for the different life habits they had at whatever stage they were at. And they could age in place gracefully without having to move and in a crisis, which is what is what is killing us, basically. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And so stop thinking about it in short term, smallish, you know, drive to the bottom, but actually something for the longer term, much larger. Mm-hmm. Can I just quickly larger, jump in there? Just in terms much. of the, the issue of elderly people, I mean, a lot of these estates, there are large numbers of elderly residents. Yes, sure and the last thing do. they want to do when you're 70 or 80 years old mm-hmm. is move. Be moved, yeah, um, exactly. And it's quite interesting, I mean, on, 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 um, on West Ken Gibbs Green, we looked at just adding a small area of single-storey bungalows, which, again, just kind of, like, you know, managed to tuck them in, which was about, you know, rehousing some, of the, some elderly residents who had a four-bedroom house who actually were quite happy not to have to pay for the energy to heat yeah, that four-bedroom sure. house, yeah. tuck in, move kind of probably a couple of hundred yards, still within the same community, and that frees up the house for a larger family. So actually, with a very few little interventions, we talk about overcrowding mm-hmm. and lots of people who are you know, paying the bedroom tax, God forbid, that a few little tiny new insertions or little moves around, actually, all those kind of things can really readjust quite simply without huge without huge intervention. The key is more choice, actually, because if there's more choice for everybody, then actually it solves the problem across the board. Adam, have you been developing any different alternative typologies in your... Yeah, I think think uh, looking at kind of... um, on On the basis of looking at the Haredi community and why that, you know, other kind of communities that live together in big families, that's allowed us to kind of try and interrogate the... Interrogate the London Housing Design Guide, which is you know quite normative, and kind of try and find those ways of flexibilities. But it, it, I think it does worry me a bit about some of it. I mean, to offer a small flat is kind of totally reasonable in that you know the supply and demand, whatever. And if you look at Paris, you can find small flats that are very very good, very nice place to live. I, what 
I think what worries me is that some of the smaller flats that are coming through uh, do kind of lack quality. Mm. They lack sustainability, you know, and that kind of right across the board, you know, sustainability, uh, adaptability, and just kind of uh, quality of being in this in the space. So although the London Housing Design Guide, you may think it's overly prescriptive or normative, at least it did set some kind of minimum standards, whereas my kind of worry about some of the newer products products, I think you know, the term advisably, is, is that they, you know, they fall outside of any housing regulation. Mm. Uh, they're not classed as, a, as housing, they're classed as something else, a sui generis, or a, a thing in themselves. Mm. And so you're getting, you know, single aspect, very narrow mm. units, that, you know, 10 metres squared. Uh, but more importantly, they're just a narrow little corridor with a bed up against the window and, you know, and you just wonder about the kind of long-term sustainability about that. And also about a kind of infantilizing of younger people, you know, first, which is a kind of, feels like a cruel double blow, actually. First of all, you know, people under 35 are cut out of the equity, right? So there's a massive disparity in, in the share of equity. So, uh, and then the final blow is that you, you, you get to live in a rabbit hutch. Uh, and as if, as if you're going to kind of party in your student dorm for the rest of, you know, for the rest of your... Uh, well, just to, just, uh, to me, I don't think I, I don't fully agree with that actually, because I think uh, having somewhere to live would be quite nice. Uh, and uh, it's interesting how people seem to still want to live centrally and forgo space if, if that's the case. To me, I don't think it's about individual or small apartments. I think it's where do people go next. That's what I really worry about, because we're seeing people moving into some very, uh, you know, I'm sure some are very nice, but smallish properties which are great for a certain time in your life, but are they mm. forever? And, and you know, I, I lived in a small flat when I was single and then, you know, had a family and I was able to move to a house. Um, but I wouldn't mind moving back to a flat when the kids are a little bit older. And actually, I'm priced out of London. So that's quite interesting, just as a life cycle, personally. And I just think, it, you know, we, we mustn't lose sight of people who do move around and do want to move around. Mm. I think it's the fact that, is there going to be the housing to do that? Because actually, if you're in a central London flat, and I use that phrase advisedly, if you're in a zone four flat in London, um, where do you go next? Because actually, what isn't being built is, is that next stage. And, and I'm worried that we're moving families into, inadvertently, into one-bed flats. Because people are going to be stuck, especially if they're busy trying to get on the equity ladder, when actually, it's all very well, you might be able to, all these products that are available, you might be able to get your first place. What do you do when you need your second place? Because there's not a lot of help there. Mm. And I think that is something that's not being talked about. The representation yeah. of, um, you know, race, it's, it's incredibly bad. No, and, and the fees are very expensive. You know, it's five years of nine grand. No, it's incredibly, <laughs> it's really, really, it was bad anyway, and it's got incredibly worse by the fact that you've got to pay all that money. So, no, we... We put a lot of effort into working with the Stephen Lawrence Trust and working with particularly young people, 16 or 17, who might be completely put off the idea of working in architecture. You know, they just see that mountain of fees, think it can't be for them. So, no, we, as a studio, we make a lot of effort on that, and we think it's really, really important. Yeah, I think you're right. The demographic architecturally is very, very, has very poor uh, representation. Yeah, definitely. This debate could go on for hours, and I hope it will. Next door, fuelled by alcohol, so you're invited to a drinks reception. Um, I also want to advertise the fact, if you're interested in these kinds of issues, I'm organising a series of six debates at Central St. Martin's next term, so look out for those advertised on the Guardian website. And thank you all for your contributions, and most of all, thank the panel for coming.
Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.